0: Some place there's got to be a place where people are free to discuss what they know and what they don't know and to find out what they can. Radioactive
1: Waves is presented by the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. Together, we will explore all things atomic, nuclear, and radioactive, along with some interesting surprises from our museum's collections and connections.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Anna Part. And today I am here with my co-host,
1: David Gibson. Hi, Anna.
2: Hi, how's it going? It's
1: going well.
2: (laughs) Um, We are here today because David got the opportunity to interview one of our most important patrons uh, here at the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. Uh, His name is Hal Bell, if you've never ever met him you will absolutely know what i'm talking about when i uh, say that he is one of the most interesting and uh, charismatic men that i have ever met um we want to thank our atomic history patron members for allowing us to do this project we would not be here without you guys thank you very very much um Today, I believe what we're gonna be listening to is David is uh, talking to Hal. Um, I'm not sure "interview" is quite right. You just kind of start him, and he, he goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's
1: he, uh, yeah. It was more of him just telling his story. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. He's a fantastic storyteller. Very much so. So, so today we're gonna to be listening to a bit more about how Hal procured some of the most important objects in our collection. Um, He's responsible for quite a bit of the uh, planes and missiles that you see out in Heritage Park at our museum when you come and visit us. And uh, he's got a fascinating story to tell about how exactly uh, he got those to us. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Yeah, this is, uh, as you mentioned, this is the second part of this, um, if you want to call it an interview. But this was done at uh, Hal's home. Um, you know, he invited me into his house to tell us his stories. And uh, I think let's just listen to part two. It's really, like you said, involving how he got a lot of things for our museum.
0: We'll talk about the, the museum. Sure. Okay. I yeah. Many, many, many years of doing other things for working for other for various companies and such. I came to Albuquerque, and lo and behold, there's a National Atomic Museum in Albuquerque. And I made a mistake. I came over one day, and in those days, the Atomic Museum was on the base in a uh, an abandoned. I heard uh, ex-anti-aircraft gun repair shop, <laughs> okay, and it was run by employees of the local Department of Energy. And I walked in there one day, and there's this nice lady, Joni Heslip, who was a DOE employee, who was the director. And I told her my story about Oak Ridge and being there and all that. And and I had a number of uh, booklets and maps of the town and uh, stuff you pick up. Right. And I said, can you use these? Well, Joni was a pretty sharp lady. It 15 minutes later I walked out of there, and I was a charter member of the foundation <laughs> and on the board.
1: And <laughs> she hooked you in a hurry. Yeah.
0: And oh, I've been cool. on the board ever since. That's cool. That is cool. Uh, so...
1: Well, having you on the board has, as uh, and and your experiences and things like that, has been one of the ways that we've gotten some of our big artifacts that we've got uh, now, right? Some of right. Our, our big missiles and things like that. Well,
0: yeah, well, that was something that was very easy. With uh, I have done a lot of work on um, on missiles mostly, and here I am uh, at a museum and working here. With and spending a lot of time at the museum. And gee, we didn't have an awful lot of things (laughs) that we ought to have, Um, so I started looking for things. I had worked uh, for Douglas Aircraft Company, which was a, a major missile and space company also. In fact, it was the Missile and Space Division of Douglas. And one of the things I had worked on when I first got got there was the Thor, which was a liquid-propelled rocket, uh, intermediate-range, they called it, that would throw a a nuclear warhead about 1,500 miles. Now, this was useful because—not because of the 1,500 miles, but more useful because we didn't have a— ICBMs, the intercontinentals, which could go six thousand miles, and therefore, being placed in the United States, if we wanted to th- threaten the Russians, uh, we had to be closer. Yeah. So, uh, the intermediate range missiles. There were two of them. There was the Air Force's Thor, and the Army's Jupiter. And they incidentally both used the same Rocketdyne engine, which was. Right near where we live in California, so we could hear them testing all the, all the time. <laughs> the whole house would shake. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I stayed on to the working on and off Thor for many years. I worked at Douglas for about 17 and a half years. Uh, and the preliminary design, and then later on, uh, the Thors went on to. Uh, being placed in Britain, some sixty of them were placed in old Royal Air Force Battle of Britain fighter uh, fields. Yeah, and uh, Douglas sent about a hundred and fifty people out there uh, to help put them together. And uh, the Brits sent people over the United States to learn how to launch them and work with them. Um, and uh, turns out, that after, well, let's see. During the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the United States had Thor's in Britain, all in place with British insignia painted on the side, and British Royal Air Force people maintaining and it. With, usually with a U.S. officer there because we owned the warheads and, and the missiles had been turned over to them. At the same time, there were a number of the Jupiters that were in Italy and Turkey. And as part of the uh, negotiations to get the Russian missiles out of Cuba, I have been told, uh, the um, Thors and the Jupiters came back to the United States. Okay. So they came in the Thor. I didn't know anything about the Jupiters, but the Thors came back into the Douglas plant, they got refurbished, they got repainted with U.S. insignia on the side, (laughs) they got put in storage, then they went off um, uh, to—some of them were taken uh, to a um, more, at that time, uh, highly classified uh, program out in the Pacific. then they came back, were refurbished again, then—let um, uh, well me go back to the—well, I'll just keep on going on this <laughs> Then some of them, uh, half a dozen went to the Navy for a Navy program called Sea Lars, Sea Launch and Recovery,
1: okay.
0: uh, which was canceled after a while. And then the course, were at the same time, or a similar time. Uh, the Air Force kept the Thor going by putting upper stages on it so that they could go take not necessarily warheads, but scientific uh, uh, payloads into orbit or into very high altitudes. So there was this, this program going on, and NASA was also taking Thors and doing NASA programs with it out of the Cape, where the Air Force was out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, uh, about the same time NASA called those, There's the Delta Program. And uh, at one time in there, um, uh, Douglas um, had a contract to build a basic Thor, and then it went down the line, and at the end of the line, it was head- transferred to the Air Force, who gave some of them to NASA, and that went off on a subline and became deltas with delta upper stages, and some of them they kept for themselves, and that went off on another line and became um, Air Force launch vehicles uh, with different—half a dozen different upper-stage – Lockheed had one called the GINA. Uh, There was one by Boeing called Burner, there was one by Aerojet, I forgot what that was called. Anyway, there was a whole whole bunch of them, but uh, it kept on going for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so, for a period there, I ended up at at Douglas running a— Launch test development program on a uh, anti ballistic missile program, and it's uh, we were launching out of a Navy base in Point Mugu, California, which is about 40 miles north of Santa Monica, which was the basic Douglas plant at that time, um, and we did that just as the uh, missiles were coming were. Had just been in place in Europe, so I inherited at Point Magoo the whole gang that had been out at uh, in in Britain. So I had this wonderful group bunch of people who, who all had been working together for several years and knew away from the plant yeah. and knew how to do things without being told what to do <laughs> and didn't have unions and all. Right. Anyways, it was yeah. great. So we did that for quite a while, uh, and then. Later on, I took over a launch program for the Air Force, where we were launching THORS with the uh, Lockheed Agena with satellites, and they were the very, very early, early uh, reconnaissance satellites, and uh, it was back before you could maneuver satellites. and. So you had to do a lot of calculating beforehand and know where you wanted, what you wanted, when, and all that stuff. And a very complex program at basis. Well, we had, we launched out of Vandenberg Air Force Base because if you launched out of there, it was sort of a nose that stuck out into the Pacific and you could end up fly if you flew south you would be over the ocean until the Antarctic continent, so it was a safe way to go into a polar orbit. Okay. Yeah. And if you went into a polar orbit, the Earth rotated underneath you so that in a short time you covered every part of the Earth. Wow. Yeah. And if you wanted to go into a what they call a geosynchronous orbit, where you were Uh, high enough, like 22,000 miles, um, that um, you would be flying at about the same angular velocity that the Earth rotates, so that if you—well, you go down the street and you look and you'll see antennas on top of houses bolted down, pointed in a direction. Now, it's, why is that bolted down? Because that's up there all the time. It's going to be right it, there. The heck it is. It's doing 20,000 <laughs> miles an hour <laughs> yeah. up there, but the Earth is rotating at the same f- speed, and somebody very skillfully put that in orbit so that it would do that, and there are now hundreds of them up there. Yeah. Um, so uh, NASA was doing that, but in order to do that, you had to do it over the equator. Okay. So most of those launches were out of Vandenberg- out of uh, Cape Canaveral, okay. Because you could launch almost equatorial. You had to do a little maneuvering, but wasn't much, and you you could do that. Yeah. So there's a deal that the Air Force would launch uh, any NASA programs that wanted to go polar, and the NASA would launch any Air Force program that wanted to go equatorial. Yeah. Uh The program I was running for the Air Force of Vandenberg in the two years or so that I did it, we launched about 30 satellites. Yeah. Uh, Only one of which was NASA. Okay. And that's the only one we screwed up on. And if you look hanging on the wall of my office, you'll see a picture of that satellite just going through the launch with signatures all around it because somebody had to go to NASA and explain why we screwed up. Oh, no. And and I guess I was the low man on the totem pole, so I ended up doing it. And therefore, you'll find all kinds of signatures. Signatures on on
1: there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: uh, let's see what else. Well, getting things for the Air Force, for the uh, museum, obviously we needed a Thor. Mm-hmm. And obviously I needed a Thor for the museum because I had been involved in it. Yeah. And uh, so I found, in amongst the Thor community, I found out about the fact that there were these five or six that the Navy owned in this warehouse down near San Diego. And the Navy didn't want them anymore. And after much research, I found out that they had been transferred to the Naval Research Laboratory that I was consulting for at the time, and I knew the people who owned it. (laughs) So it didn't take much, Uh, the Navy wanted to get rid of them now because the program was canceled. And it didn't take much to convince them to give us one, Yeah, and uh, t- didn't take much to convince Douglas to come up with the money to transport it to Albuquerque from uh, San Diego. Actually, it was in Carlsbad, California, the suburb of, California, of uh, San Diego. And they hooked it up to a, a, a trailer. Uh, System like an 18 wheeler and drove it down I 40 all the way from California, 850 miles, right into the uh, backyard of the uh, museum. Wow, and we we never took a picture of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, imagine driving down. Yeah,
0: what is that? Yeah,
1: Yeah, that would have been so great. (laughs) Oh, that's neat, yeah.
0: And uh, same time, we decided we needed a Titan. Which was a major uh, intercontinental missile that the United States had. Uh, Lockheed made it. And again, I had been on several programs where once Titan was taken out of the uh, silos and replaced, Titan was a liquid propellant uh, missile and was replaced by solid propellant ones. The liquids are very dangerous, they were what they call hypergolic which meant that if the oxidizer and the fuel just touched each other, they would go off. Yeah. And they had some really horrible accidents. A fellow dropped a wrench on one of them out uh, at Vandenberg, and it blew up and killed really? a whole bunch of people.
1: Wow. Uh, <clears throat> so that was one of the... So anyways, they
0: had a bunch of them sitting around uh, waiting to figure out what to do with them. And it uh, turned out... After a little digging, I got to know the program manager, and uh, they were stored in an Air Force base near California, Norton Air Force Base uh, near Los Angeles. And they couldn't figure out where to put it, because Norton was going to be closed. And they finally found out, figured out, they stored in an Army place in uh, Pueblo, Colorado, where the Army had a lot of stuff stored. Well, I called my friend and I asked him, couldn't they accidentally drop one off in Albuquerque on the way? And <laughs> you he said, right I don't know, somewhere. let me do some digging. And he did some digging and called me back and he said, yeah, just so happens I think I can do that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So we actually had a Titan before the Air Force Museum had it. That's cool. And. Uh, before the, the Smithsonian doesn't have any but before the Air Force Museum because I remember going walking in the museum one time and there's Joni, the director standing there holding the telephone out from her ear yes, yes, yes and there's this fella screaming and yelling at her and it turned out it was somebody from the Air Force Museum who was yelling at her because we had gotten one that they didn't have and uh, so I kind of said to her, until you got a volunteer that you can't control, you don't know what he's doing, and um, he did it, and you'd had nothing whatsoever to do it. Didn't even know it until it came here. It just she showed up on did. your door one day. She yeah. did, and it turned out that way.
1: Oh, that's neat. Yeah, that is neat.
0: And uh, let's see, that's the Thor and the Titan. We had, um, oh. When, we, when I first started the museum, when it was at the base, there were a couple of wooden plywood rotting crates out in the back, and nobody quite knew what they were. So finally we had some uh, Navy reservists that had nothing to do on a Saturday, and they came over, well, how can we help? And we said, take those things apart and let's see what's in them. Yeah. And it turns out they were part of a Nike-Hercules uh, anti uh, aircraft, anti-missile, uh, and… Uh,
1: they were just sitting there in
0: crates. Gee, I didn't know anything about Nike-Hercules, I'd worked on the Rocket Motors for it, but yeah. I didn't know means about the missile itself. And we took all the pieces out and we kind of, they look all right. right, you know, I took pictures of all of them. And it turned out that there was a uh, near San Francisco in Sausalito, There was a, a Nike Hercules base during the Cold War to protect San Francisco. Okay. And um, the, the thing had been de-emphasized and closed down and all that. And a bunch of volunteers went out there and took it over as a hobby, and they fixed the elevators, and they pumped the water out of the storage areas, and they found pieces, and they put them together, and they had pretty much of a working thing with dummy motors. Right. Course, no real—radars uh, uh, didn't really work, but they turned around, and of course, uh, no uh, live warheads. Right. So I went out there, because my wife was teaching her uh, quick sketching classes for the University of California regularly. Uh, in the bay area and i got to know them i took all my pictures and i said what are we missing yeah and they looked and they looked and they looked and they said hmm you're missing um, a warhead section said, well what does it look like well we'll show you one when i got one I photographed it and then we went back and we Found it way in the corner underneath a whole bunch of <laughs> um, um, <laughs> weeds and things well, like that. And we actually cool. found it. Well, okay, that was that was great. Now what are we gonna do? We will figure out how to put it together. Yeah, um, and um, it'd be nice if we could get a launcher. Then we wouldn't have to make a concrete thing. Or, so, colleague, you know, Fifty different countries were using them, and they were all phasing out at different times. Let's see what we can do. So I started contacting embassies and places (laughs) like that, and no, no answers. Nobody was interested. And finally I figured out that NASA had been using some of the boosters, the first stage, for... Just space probes to send stuff up, okay. they just put something on top of it. And maybe they had some launches. So I started calling up people on different NASA bases. Well, you know, no, we don't have any, but why don't you try the guys at Wallops Island, Virginia? No, we don't have any, but uh, gee, have you uh, talked to the guys at the Cape? And then someone back and forth, and finally somebody said, you know, this may sound silly, Especially since you're in New Mexico. But there's a, a, a Navy group at White Sands Missile Range, and I think they may have some launches right near you. Like
1: right there, yeah.
0: So I went down and talked to them. And lo and behold, well, yeah, we have some out in the desert somewhere that we're not using. <laughs> we went out, and they had about six of them. Really. And the launches came in two pieces, so uh, you had a ra- launch rail that hooked in, and then the missile hooked on the launch rail. Well, they have the launch rails. Well, I don't know, well, let's see. Well, it turned out, uh, yeah, by golly, they got them all. <laughs> so, okay, now they're there. Yeah. Can we Can we have them? Well, we'll have to check. Right. Yeah, you can have them. Come get them. <laughs> yeah. Mm. How are we going to get these? They tw- weigh about 25,000 yeah. uh, pounds. One of our board members, Tom Taylor, is a retired Major General in the Army. Okay. He knew the New Mexico National Guard <laughs> who had, in Las Vegas, New Mexico, a transportation co- <laughs> company. Yeah. So... Tom got them, and they, uh, anyway, they decided to do a, um, uh, uh, a, an exercise, a training exercise. Mm. So they two great big flatbed trucks with two Humvees <laughs> with machine guns going all the way down, uh, I-25. Yeah. Down to White Sands. We sweet-talked, um, White Sands crane people into coming out and picking it up and putting them on, um, <laughs> uh, Oh, one other thing. There's a, a great big control box underneath our launcher now. Okay. That I had no idea what it was. Yeah. I'd never seen it. And the crane operator said to me as he does that go to? I said, sure. <laughs> so it, it's there. I'm, it's still not, I'm still not quite sure what oh, it is. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so we got that on. Yeah. Uh, so those are some of the things that we, we picked up.
1: Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, see, I mean that's 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 a lot of the museum is having these big old artifacts like that. Oh yeah,
0: you know, I mean airplanes and missiles, is things that people really like. The kids like to see. And, yeah. Uh, before we fenced off a lot of our stuff, you, they you can actually touch them. Yeah. That's even better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah i think i I think that's if we didn't have those airplanes and those missiles out there, I think our uh, visitation would probably be half or less
1: oh I know when you know when I'm talking to kids or I'm talking to families and and oh what did, what did you like to see the planes the planes yeah, yeah. the planes, the missiles, the big you know yeah and of
0: course our volunteers have done such a fantastic job of putting these things together, putting the uh, uh, the uh or uh, well, the Meg, mm-hmm. and putting the uh, uh, Nike Hercules together, and putting them on the uh, uh, on the launcher.
1: Yeah. I mean, Fun. the painting. painting, I mean, yeah,
0: painting the airplanes and things.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, it really looks great out there. It really does.
2: Thank you so much, Hal. Uh, That was a fantastic story. And um, I can't wait to hear some more of your interview with David. Uh, David, thank you so much for going out to his house and getting this. Honestly, this is an important oral history for our collection, and as well as a very entertaining story. Yeah, it
1: it makes for a great podcast too. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, this I think was a neat place to kind of end this because after this, like in our next episode, uh, he'll talk about kind of some of his previous experiences and and the connections and things that he's made that enabled him to be able to get all those wonderful artifacts we heard about in this one. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think that we will uh, see you guys on our next podcast, which, as I said, we'll talk to Hal about how he – Um, made all these wonderful connections and until then as we end every podcast first thanking our atomic history patron members and then reminding you to wash your hands radioactive waves has been presented by the national museum of nuclear science and history join us next time for more interviews histories and insights on topics like the manhattan project science and pop culture, the atomic age, and the differences between nuclear fact and fiction.